I'm not going to preach the whole context that is created behind this, but he had heard that there were divisions amongst the church, you know, and the church was divided for various reasons. He had already previously addressed that in the second and the third chapter of the, of the same book, the book of 1 Corinthians. But he said, and I partly hear it, I, I believe it, I hear about it, and I recognize that there are divisions even among the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth might not just be one body like we have today, First Assembly Hebrew Springs. Remember, he's writing to the church as a whole. They might be meeting in separate places of worship at this particular time. Perhaps there was enough growth that people couldn't just meet together under one roof. So he's writing to the church of Corinth. He writes to a whole city. It would be like us reading epistle that says to the church in Heber Springs or to the churches that are in Arkansas. It would be written, you know, with a plural uh, application. So he said, I hear that there are divisions among you and I partly believe it. 19th verse brings clarification. For there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. In essence, the, the apostle is saying is that the division creates to a degree a revelation of who is actually right and who's actually wrong. Does that make sense right there? The, the division and the group. That's why it's important that you associate yourself with the right people groups in every area of life. Isn't that right? He said because this division is actually bringing the clarification that some have a spirit of heresy. Some are teaching things that are unbiblical. Some are teaching things that deviate from the foundational cornerstone truth to which we believe believe in what we, we hope for and, and, and live in and trust in. And thus, that's the way it is today. Some of the division that you're seeing in the church is necessary. It's necessary for us to be able to distinguish between an, an apostolic church that is anointed of God and apostate church that has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. That's the days in which we have arrived at here in America. And so today, I'm going to share with you something in ancient Israel that looks into the division that was created in the context of their nation and something and in one singular event, one singular event that resounds with spiritual truth for me today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're humbled before you today, God, and we thank you for this opportunity to share the Word of God. My spirit is attuned. I can go the, any direction that you would urge me, God. Father, for I would want to be found guilty of, Father, not preaching. I do not want to be found guilty of preaching heresy. I want to be found guilty of affirming that which is right, that which is true. I want to continue in a lineage of apostolic doctrine that's founded upon the teachings of Jesus Christ Father, and his apostles and, the, and the, the church that would be birthed from their teaching, God. I pray, Father, that I'll be a part of the apostolic church and not the apostate church. And all God's children that are opening your spirit up with mine would say, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me take you for just a moment without going to a particular text as of yet. Three verses of scripture are yet for us to read a little bit later in the sermon this morning. In a time when the nation of Israel was divided. When I say the nation of Israel was divided, the nation of Israel became divided based upon the division of the northern kingdoms or the northern kingdom and the northern tribes and the southern tribes. You can remember as you've studied the book of Judges that when Joshua led the conquest of Canaan's land that the nation was divided based upon tribes. There were 12 tribes, and every, every tribe was appointed a particular region. 
And from that division and inheritance, that initial division of land, they still function in unity as one people group, certainly the people of the nation of Israel. But the nation became divided after the death of Solomon. And that's what I'd like to kind of allude to for just a moment. It was actually an odd moment when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was presented to, by an opportunity to perhaps uh, make it a slight change from the ministry style that his father had ruled. Now remember Solomon at the end of his life had gone apostate himself. It's hard for us to fathom the wisest of all that would fall prey to an apostate religion, but he did. It was through the lust of his flesh. He had married 700 wives. Many of them introduced idolatry to him. And by the end of his, uh, of his reign, 40 years over Israel, he himself had become apostate. And so Rehoboam, his son, is upon the throne. A man by the name of Jeroboam comes to him and approaches him and says, look, your father ruled us with an iron fist. And, and he said, if you'll just, if you'll lessen that sum, just lessen it some, the people will follow you wherever you want to go. Wherever you want to take this nation, they will follow you. And so Rehoboam surrounded himself with a bunch of ignorant teenagers. Let's just be honest. He surrounded himself with a group of kids that had no really knowledge about how to lead anybody, how to leave lasting impact on their lives. And they said, you tell Jeroboam that, that Solomon ruled us with his pinky finger. He said, but I, you tell him I'm going to rule him with an iron fist. And, and so he came out three days later and he told them that. And when he did, it divided the kingdom, it split the kingdom. The ten northern tribes still provided some measure of allegiance to Rehoboam, but the southern tribes eventually were factioned and fractured off. Now, I want to take you for just a little bit down just a brief following of what was going on in the nation, just quickly. The southern kingdom, which again had Jerusalem, which was Judah, the lineage of the kings, uh, the actual ministry, it's where the, the tent, first the tabernacle and then the temple was. The southern kingdom, to a degree, had some measure of sincere faith. If you read the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you can kind of trail many of these kingdoms, and you'll see that a lot of times there was a measure of righteous activity through the southern kingdom. Let me give you an example. Asa was king for 38 years. Prior to, just, just prior to the time frame in which we're going to talk about in just a few moments. Here's what 2 Chronicles 14 says about Asa. He did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He took away the altars of the strange gods. He broke the images. He cut down the groves. Uh, did, did you know even what a grove is? I'm going to tell you in just a moment what, what a grove is, and it's going to surprise many of you. And he tore down the high places. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord. And it was only towards the end of his tenure do we find any measure of reproach whatsoever upon Asa's, uh, you know, his, his time as the king. And it was when he began to, he, he was faced with a, a, a battle, and rather than going to God and saying, God, I need your help, he asked for help from the king of Syria. And God reproved him for it and said, you should have asked me for help. I'd rather ask God for help than man. Come on, somebody. I'd rather cast myself and say, my God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think than to put my trust in man. And so he was reproved by God. And ultimately, even though his kingdom and he had, he had brought forth a measure of righteousness, he died of a sickness in his feet because the scripture says he looked to the physicians rather than the Lord. Now, we're not against physicians, but I'll tell you what, we have to pray when we go to the doctor that the doctor becomes a tool in the hand of the great physician. Isn't that right? And But see, when he, because he had done a lot of things right in the eyes of God, when his son became king, his son was by the name of Jehoshaphat. 
Now, number one, that's a pretty cool name just right there. Jehoshaphat, if anybody could carry an anointing because of their name, it would be that name, Jehoshaphat. He walked in the, here's what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 17. He walked in the first ways of his father David. Remember, every subsequent king that would sit upon the throne of either Israel or Judah in the division of the kingdom would be measured against one king, David. And here it says, Jehoshaphat had the spirit of David. Remember what was written about David? He was a man after God's own heart, right? He would rather suffer reproach than to bring reproach to the name of God. And so his, here's what it says. Look at this. He, he walked in the first ways of his father David, and his kingdom was established. That's a powerful truth. Because I believe it's a good thing when government leaders seek the Lord. When they walk righteous before the Lord. When they humble themselves and they don't follow idolatry. Did you know the book of Proverbs says that when the, when the uh, righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. There ought to be a groan in America today. Should be a groan echoing across the land. The condition of the northern kingdom, though, was much different than the, that many-year tenured uh, kingdom of, of Jehoshaphat uh, pre- uh, before and his father Asa in front of him. The condition of the northern kingdom. Listen, Jeroboam, who was the one that was responsible for the coup that led to the division of the nation, as he recognized, as he recognized that so many of the people that were following him, in order to keep their allegiance from falling to the southern kingdom, he recognized that the temple was in the southern kingdom. And if the people consistently go to the temple and hear the word of God, then their hearts can be changed. No wonder the devil's always fighting. That's why even you as a Christian feel pressure. How come it's always easy to do anything else other than go to church? Right? There's always opposition to even Christians because if we consistently go where the word of God is being preached, the true word of God, it produces change. So, so Jeroboam said, we've got to stop this. They got a temple, we need a temple. They have a God, Yahweh, we need a God. So Jeroboam took golden calves. Remember the golden calf? We think about the golden calves stum- and the Israelites stumbling in the Exodus, but that wasn't the only time they stumbled with the golden calf. Jeroboam fashions two golden calves, steps out in front of his ten, na- uh, his ten tribe kingdom and said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Not that Yahweh God that sits upon the mercy seat behind the veil in the temple. He's not God. These be your gods. And so he built a temple and he sanctioned a priesthood to function in ministry towards uh, the, the golden calves. He was ultimately rebuked by a prophet of the Lord. Thank God for men and women that have an anointing that's strong enough to face uh, even apostate kings and leaders and say, sir, you are wrong in the eyes of God. Thank God for those. He died in the effect of that reproof or that rebuke, but it did not stop there. Listen very carefully. His son's name is Nadab. This is what it said about Nadab. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He reigned only two years, and he was slain by Basha. Basha was the son of Ahijah, Ahijahiah, Shatakiah, <laughs> of the house of Issachar. Basha did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you're seeing a generational curse just continue. 
generationally, one upon the other. He reigned for 24 years in Israel, the northern kingdom. When he died, his son took his throne. He reigned in sin for a short period of time before he was killed. When he was killed, Zimri took, reigned in his stead. He continued the sinful lineage and died in an apparent suicide by burning the king's house upon himself. Now remember, this is happening in the northern kingdom while Asa and Jehoshaphat for 40 plus, 50 plus years are reigning in the southern kingdom. And because they're walking in righteousness before God, God is favoring and blessing the southern kingdom. But there's contention and strife and sin in the northern kingdom. Omri is made king and he reigns for 12 years. During this time, he makes Samaria his capital city. Here's what it said about Omri. Omri is Omri, in essence, because the scripture says this, he did worse than all who reigned before him. So the author is looking back all the way to Saul and following the lineage down, and he said, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that was before him, or all who reigned before him. But it takes an interesting turn upon his death, because his son begins to reign, and then the writer says the same thing, about what he had said previously about Omri. He said, the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. So think about that. One generation earlier, the prophet looked at the, at the political leadership of Omri and said, this brother is worse than Saul He's worse than Rehoboam. He's worse than the apostate condition of Jeroboam. He's worse than any that have, other, that, that have sat on the throne. This brother has exceeded them all. And then when that brother has a son who takes his stead, then the author takes a giant step back and says, wait a minute, in essence, I was wrong. This guy now has taken evil to a new level. That son's name was Ahab. The infamous king of the northern kingdom, Ahab. Ahab's treachery and his failure resides upon his, primarily upon his decision to marry Jezebel. Jezebel, if you'll read the scriptures, was the daughter of the priestess, of the priest king of the Zidonites, which was northern. That was the northern, it was on the northern border of, of, of Israel. It would be where Lebanon is today. When we went to Israel, we stood right there, Jojo and Shane and myself and Dr. Brassfield and others that were with us. We stood right there where we could look into southern Lebanon where Hezbollah is in control of that region. The terrorist group Hezbollah, just beyond the, 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 our site would have been the region of Zidon where Jezebel descended from. And Jezebel introduced through her marriage with Ahab a Canaanite religion called Baal worship. And if you study the scriptures, it was the greatest stumbling block in the history of the nation. Greater than the golden calves in the days of the, of the Exodus and greater than the golden calves that Jeroboam introduced to the people many generations later. Because the worship of Baal appealed to the, uh, the, the, the part of humanity that can become abased so quickly and that is our sexuality. Because here's what the Canaanite religion comp was comprised of. Baal was a sensual god. He was a sensual god that lusted for other goddesses 
that he would have celestial sex with. I know this is more than PG-13 today, but I'm just going to share with you the whole truth. And so the religion evolved around this right here, that in the pagan practices of the people that were hoping to enlist Baal to have sex with a pagan goddess like Ashtoreth so that they might rain water on the earth, the people practiced illicit sexual behavior. So when you went to the temple of Baal, there were prostitutes there. So men would then have sex sometimes open air, sight, open sight, so that Baal would look down upon the practices. He would get aroused, and so then he would slip over in the bed of Ashtoreth, and they would have celestial sex and then reign on the earth. Now that seems as strange to us, but that is the truth of that Canaanite religion. The groves that you hear that's talked about in Scripture when you read about a grove, now many of us think about like Shady Grove Baptist Church. We're not naming our church grove at any time. Let me just tell you. Because a grove was more than a nice forest to go through. Primarily a grove was when they took, uh, they took a tree and they whittled it down until it looked like the male sexual organ. So a multitude of the grove would be so that the God that's looking down is always sexually aroused. It's pagan in the eyes of God. It's the kind of religion that when God sent Israel into the promised land, he said, don't practice what they're practicing. It will eventually cause the land itself to vomit you out. Listen, everything that you want to do is not necessarily good to do. Even everything that people around us are practicing is not necessarily good for our culture and the climate of life in which we live. Now Ahab would eventually be reproved by one faithful prophet by the name of Elijah who came out of nowhere of the inhabitants of Gilead. He had no uh, predecessor. He just suddenly appears. He's been locked up with God and he knows that Ahab's practices are wrong. And, And so he said to prove that your practices are wrong and that Baal is not God, he went before Ahab and he confronted him. And he said, Baal, I want you to know, he said, you can have all the celestial sex that you want to have happen. He said, but it ain't gonna rain. It's not, I don't care how many temples you build. I don't care how many people are, are practicing this illicit sexual behavior. He said, I want you to know that God's given me authority and I have locked the heavens and for three and a half years, it's not going to rain on the earth. I don't care what goes on in your pagan religion. Man, we need prophets of God that have bold authority in the spirit realm in the name of the Lord. And so you know the story. I'm not preaching the whole story about Elijah, but man, after three and a half years of drought, Things were really difficult in that northern kingdom. It was a difficult time. People were soddening their own children to satisfy, you know, their, 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 their hunger because famine is always a result of, of a drought. And, and when, when Elijah finally confronted Ahab again, notice this. And see, this is why, see, people's perceptions can be so skewered. When Elijah is sent by the Lord for a fateful moment of confrontation on the Mount Carmel where he would invite the prophets of Baal in that great showdown that's recorded in 1 Kings 18. You remember that story? Those of you that still read your Bible, then the scripture just tell us that when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to Elijah, you are the one that's troubling Israel. How come the world's saying it's us, the church, that keeps everything messed up in America? How come it's us? Elijah said, no, excuse me, but you're the one that's troubling Israel. 
I'm telling you, there's a movement in the earth today. There's a movement in America today that's troubling the land. And it's not the church of Jesus Christ. It's an apostate religion and it's an apostate political structure that we need men and women to have boldness and authority and anointing to balance who they are based upon the precepts of the Word of God and to realign themselves to, to godly principles as God reveals them to us from the Word of God. And Elijah was strong and bold. He confronted Ahab on Mount Carmel and eventually the 450 prophets of Baal were taken and they were slain. It was a very difficult thing certainly to do, but it was necessary to try to limit the effects of the religion in the land. But when Jezebel got word that the prophet Elijah had had the 450 prophets of Baal slain, the Bible said that she uttered these words, the intimidation. There is a spirit of Jezebel that is still on the land. There is a spirit of Jezebel that wants to intimidate prophets and preachers and to hinder us from lifting our voices up and confronting the darkness of this age. And she said, may the gods do so to me if Elijah is not dead by this time tomorrow. And when Elijah, the bold prophet, heard the word of Elijah, the bold prophet that had stood and confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, when he heard, I'm telling you, there is a spirit that works sometimes. The spirit of Jezebel, that bold prophet, suddenly ran from his life hid under a juniper tree and said, God, I'd just soon die. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to preach. I don't want to confront. I don't want to lead a school of prophets. I'm tired of the pressure of the age. Now, thank God he found his place of, of resuscitation. He found his place in a cave of restoration and it was there. He wrapped his head in his mantle and he rekindled the spiritual gift and the call of God and he came back down from the mountain out of the cave's mouth with fire and anointing in his spirit once again. So thank God he may have stumbled, but he didn't fall. Glory to God. And so therefore he is still a prophet that we, we hold to in great esteem. But that to a degree is setting the crisis that in just a moment of time I'm going to talk to you about in just a moment of time. Evil and dark days were in the northern kingdom of Israel. In a few moments we're going to go to three verses of scripture. But I'm going to share with you and I'm going to make a counter, I'm going to make a counter comparison. Now, you have to be very careful as a pastor anytime you reach into the, either the Old Testament or the New Testament and extract a situation that was happening in those days and bring it and make it exact to our, our generation. You have to be very careful. My attempt is not to necessarily make an exact replica. I don't want to pervert the Word of God, but the Word of God is a similitude. The Word of God gives me the ability to look in it and say, that was happening then. And then look around and say, that's happening now, right? And so, so I'm going to do this today for you. The reality is the nation is divided. The nation of America is divided. We're divided politically, we're divided religiously, and we're divided morally. Amen. Certainly my sermon is in the context of July 4th from this next Friday as a nation and certainly uh, in anticipation of the continuation of this vein next Sunday morning. Last week's sermon addressed the growing militant, intimidating homosexual movement in America. You have to listen to it before you make any type of judgment concerning it. Don't judge it until you've heard it. Is that fair? Amen. Right? Because I judge, I weighed my own spirit. It's very important to me. Weigh my own spirit. But like a conquering war machine, this movement continues to feed off of the perversion of many in America and the lukewarmness of the church. 
The pressure is mounting as they press for political, educational, workforce, military, and religious institutions to affirm a distorted ideology. And in my personal opinion, a theology because I believe it is actually idolatry. Now here's where the, the, the thing's going to twist for you a little bit today. While there has always been some measure, I'm reading many of the things that I pinned down that I make sure that I'm articulating them the way that I believe that I should share them. While there has always been some measure of immorality in both of the major political parties, it seems to me as if the Democratic Party in the United States has become the movement's greatest ally. The Democratic Party continues to move further and further away from its historical root. The Democratic Party of today is not the Democratic Party that FDR led in the, in the 40s and the 50s. It is not. In 2012, the Democratic National Convention booed viciously at the name of God. When God's name was read as a part of their platform, His name was booed viciously. His name was then removed from their public statement for a short period of time and only reinstated after some pressure from the Southern Democrats. It sounds like the kingdom of their mind. The party proudly supports abortion and the party is the champion of gay and lesbian rights and their assault on the traditional family and marriage. They're driven to obtain not only governmental and ecclesiastical, is that it? Endorsement of homosexual marriage and right now, here's what they say in their platform. It means the oddity of oddities to me is that many even in the church that still vote Democratic have never even taken the time to read what their platform says. The Democratic Party says they support the right of the church to not endorse the homosexual movement. They're saying it right now. But you better get ready. Because if things continue the way they are, there will be, there will be continuing pressure for a preacher like me to stand before you and say, you know what, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. And that when we refuse to ordain homosexual marriage, that, that day is not there yet, but in my personal belief, it's coming. Oddly at the forefront of this is President Obama. Why do you say oddly, Pastor Brown? Because do y'all not remember the campaign? The campaign, when he campaigned against Hillary Clinton, his stance was he did not endorse homosexual marriage. But then, almost like Rehoboam, he listened to his daughters, his so spiritually attuned daughters, who studied the Word of God and came forth and said, no, it's okay. God has affirmed it and approved it. His daughters shifted him, and then he made a change. Remember his slogan during his campaign? Change. Yes, we can. He's right. Change we have. But here's what I believe he needs to do. He needs to rather say these words. He needs to tell those who are caught in the vice of homosexuality, change, yes you can. Trust in the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit, the blood of Jesus, and change you can. Oddly enough, on the same day that I previously mentioned last week that the Presbyterian church fell to the pressure to affirm homosexual marriage, he was speaking at the National Gay and Lesbian Day. Okay? He declared May in the United States by presidential uh, executive order May to be National Gay and Lesbian Appreciation Month. 
And so, let, let me just read for just a moment, if I can. If y'all just stay with me, I want to share this with you. I think it's very important. I'm, I'm looking for a piece of paper that I have to share with you real quickly. I, the, what he shared on that day, as taken and quoted from the article by Charisma News. Here are a few excerpts from the transcript of his speech. This is what he said. The day that the Supreme Court issued its ruling, United States versus Windsor, was a great day for America. In essence, that allowed the gay movement to come out of the closet. Number two, so Pride Month is a time for celebration. And this year we've got a lot to celebrate. If you think about everything that's happened in the last 12 months, it is remarkable. In nine more states, you're now free to marry the person you love. That includes my two home states of Hawaii and Illinois. The NFL drafted its first openly gay player. The U.S. Postal Service has made history by putting an openly gay person on a stamp. I wonder where they found the pressure to do that at. The late, great Harvey Milk smiling from ear to ear. He says, boastfully, when I took office, only two states had marriage equality. Today, 19 states and the District of Columbia do. Change, yes, we have. But because of your help, we've been able to do more to protect the rights of lesbian and gay and bisexual gender and transgender Americans than any administration in history. We repealed, don't ask, don't tell, because no one should have to hide who you love to serve the country we love. I lifted the 22-year ban on people with HIV traveling to the U.S., and before I took office, only one openly gay judge had been confirmed in history. Now we have 10 more. And I'd like to just address that just real quickly. If a judge does not have the ability to discern whether he as a male should have a sexual encounter unnaturally with another male, Personally, I'm not sure he's fit to make a judgment over my life. That's how I feel. You can base whatever you want to feel. This is the, one of the hardest ones to swallow because he previously actually affirmed this. We stopped defending the so-called Defense of Marriage Act in the courts and we argued alongside Eddie and Robbie. Not any of the Eddies among us today, just real quickly so you'll know that. Eddie and Robbie, and a couple of Eddies are like... Whew. Thank you for clarifying that, Pastor Brown. Before the highest court in the land, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, which is simply the act that says that we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and should be affirmed that way in the eyes of the, of the church, in the eyes of our nation. He said, I've directed my staff to prepare for my sig signature an executive order prohibiting discrimination by federal contractors on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So oddly enough, he went from not affirming this to now being their loudest voice that's speaking across the land. That's why I say in my personal belief, and I, I don't guess I, you know, I represent all of your beliefs, but I am trying to move your beliefs in a certain way. I don't mind. They have an agenda. I have an agenda. Right? They have an agenda to twist your moral beliefs until you affirm it. I have a, an agenda to try to cause you to be so solid based upon true biblical understanding that you reject it and reprove it in Jesus' name. So I have an agenda. And I'm unashamed of that. All the while this movement be, goes beyond the political arena. It continues to feed off of the lukewarm spirituality in the church. It's feeding like a cancer. It's claiming the Lutherans, the United Church of Christ, the Episcopalians... I can say it, but I couldn't spell it Wednesday night. The Presbyterians, and oddly enough, many in the Methodist church. 
At the same time, a pastor in the Methodist church married his uh, son to another male. He was first reproved by the Methodist. The Methodist reevaluated and chose that it was okay the action that he took. Did you know that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, said these words? He said this. He said, I, I will never believe that the people called Methodists will cease to exist. In essence, they will always exist. He said, but I fear in existing they will become a dead sect, having a form of godliness and denying the power thereof. If he could see it today, perhaps he would recognize that his prophecy was on the edge of being fulfilled. My perplexity, here's my perplexity as your pastor, is how sincere Christians still give their allegiance to the political platform, to the platform knowing of its distorted and demonic doctrine. I suppose the promise of gifts from the treasury is sufficient to capture even the votes of sincere believers. Oddly, the faulty promise of free health care and a cell phone is all it takes to move a sincere Christian to give their support and allegiance to a movement to it that is indirectly responsible for the abortion of 40 million unborn children and the rise of one of the most militant, activist, sexually perverted movements since Ahab and Jezebel introduced Baal worship in Israel. That's how I feel, Pastor Brown. Turn with me, please, from just in this passage, and we're going to return to the days of Ahab, and we're just going to find ourselves just juggling for our position. Juggling for our position. 1 Kings chapter 21. I want you to read one verse. We'll read the first verse. It came to pass. We're going back to Ahab for just a moment. Back to Ahab. Ahab's palace. Now see, when Ahab survived the drought, God in his sovereign mercy brought rain to the... God is such a merciful God. He is so merciful. His mercy is renewed every morning. If it wasn't for his mercy, we would all be consumed. He is a merciful God. If we just humble ourselves before the Lord, if we rend our heart and not our garment, then God is merciful unto us. The old passage of Scripture that we read in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Maybe that's why we don't have healing in our land today is because we don't have enough Christians prayerfully rending their own heart and being humbled before the Lord. But if we would, I believe God would answer. I don't believe that in essence that America has totally fallen. If she has, she can rise from the ashes greater than she was if we have a righteous movement of revival in the church that bleeds out into the earth and bleeds out into our nation Ahab's palace in the days of his apostasy after surviving the famine was beside a vineyard that was owned by a Jezreelite this Jezreelite's man was by the name of Naboth this vineyard was his possession Naboth's father and his father before him had owned that vineyard it was in that vineyard that he had received the inheritance. It was there that his father had labored fervently. He had dug trails in the soil to plant precious seed. He had watered that seed and prayed over it until that rugged landscape, barren landscape, had now become a fruitful vineyard. 
I'm sure it was there. Remember what the Bible says, that a father is to teach his children not just through Bible study seated in a school or in a Sunday school class, but the Old Testament exhortation was a father that when you're just walking along the way, you're supposed to talk to your children about the Word of God. And I'm sure that there were days that Naboth's father had taken him into the vineyard and there they were harvesting their fruit and I'm sure it was there that Naboth asked questions about the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and it was there in that vineyard that that father began to share how that they were Assyrians and they were away from God and didn't know God but God formed a covenant by the, with a man by the name of Abraham and made promises to him and they were hid in bondage for 400 years but Moses the man of God brought them out and on the night of the Passover God pronounced judgment upon Egypt and in one moment of time they went from, they went from being uh, prisoners who were paupers to suddenly having all the gold and the wealth of Egypt and out they came by strong and mighty hand and they were confronted by a red sea and Moses took the rod of God's anointing and stretched it out. Can you imagine the ears and the eyes of that little boy Naboth lightening up as his dad is telling him about the God of his fathers, how he stretched his arm out and God blew the waters back and the people of Israel came over on dry ground and, and that was their God. He was the invisible God. He's not a God made of stone. He's not a God made of wood. He's not a God of the earth. He's the God of heaven. He sits on high. He looks down low. He is the God that has weighed the waters in the palm of his hand. He's the God that by his finger he has sculptured uh, the riverbeds. He's a God of creation. He was there in the beginning and he'll be there in the end. Uh, he's the God that hung the stars uh, in the night sky and he calls them all by name. Naboth, that's our God. The very hairs of your head are, are, are numbered. God knows your thoughts, your imaginations. Remember what our Father David said, before a word will be formed on your tongue, your God already knows. That's why you guard your words and choose them carefully. Naboth, that's just uh, your God. He's our God. He's the God of the Yahweh. He's the God of the Hebrew people. He's our God. Serve him, Naboth. Serve him, Naboth. Serve him, Naboth with all your heart. And so Naboth grew, and one day his dad would wax old and his eyes would grow dim, and one day he would clutch his breath, his last breath, and he would pass away. And when he passed away, the inheritance uh, that he had worked and received of his father would be passed to Naboth. And so even in the days of apostasy he's labored diligently. I'm sure his, uh, his vineyard suffered because of the effects of the drought as well, but he knew in his heart that God was gracious. God had promised through the words of Solomon that even during times of drought, if the people would just turn to God with all their heart, God would answer. He would send rain. He would respond because he's a gracious God. It had happened on Mount Carmel, the prophet Elijah bowed his head and his knees seven times. Rain had not been seen in seven years or three and a half years. And then he saw coming across the Mediterranean Sea like the hand of a man, a cloud that began to roll and it released rain upon the earth. I'm sure that convinced again Naboth that God was a gracious God who was responding to the humbling repentance of the people of Israel. The Bible says, that from his palace, Ahab looked down at that vineyard and he wanted that vineyard. He wanted that vineyard for himself. It wasn't enough that he had all the other resources that were given to him as the king of Israel, second verse. So he said, you know what? I'm going to go to Naboth and I'm going to strike me a deal with Naboth. I'm going to use all of my resources that are available unto me. 
I'm going to offer him a garden of herbs. I'm going I'm I'm to exchange it. I'm going to exchange it. See, I'll tell you what. Let me tell you, a, a vineyard was of greater value than a garden of herbs. It was to the, to, the, to the people of Israel. It's one of the staples. Wine was a staple in their culture. It's far greater value than a garden of herbs. He said, I'll swap it for him. He said, and he said, or or Naboth, I don't know what it was like that day that Ahab, I know he didn't come alone. No king moved in his kingdom alone. I'm sure he had an entourage of armed soldiers beside him. I don't know if they came in on a chariot. I don't know if they rode horses or I don't know if they walked, but I know it wasn't just Ahab alone, but he came and he found Naboth working in his vineyard. I don't know. Is Naboth musing psalms under his breath? Is he worshiping the Lord? Is he just uh, thanking God and thanking, thinking of God Thanking, thanking him for all the blessings that he's put upon his life when he looks up and here comes the king, King Ahab, approaching him to make this deal. And he says, here, here, he said, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a garden better than this one that you received of your fathers. Even though, now Naboth, I know the book of Moses says don't sell your land but it's antiquated. That's the old-fashioned way of doing things. We don't do things like that anymore. We don't. That was an antiquated book. We've proven that that God is just, you know, uh, he's not really the real God. Baal is, is the real God. And, and, and he said, I know you have that belief system. We'll argue that later, but I'll give you a vineyard. I'll give you a garden better than the one you've got right now. And Or if you don't really want to do that, I've got enough gold and silver. I'll just give you all the gold and silver necessary, and I'll buy your inheritance from you. And I can only in the theater of my mind see Naboth standing in that field that day. I don't know if he looks to his right and looks to his left and there are his two young sons beside him. But I know in his heart of hearts uh, he's he's rehearsing things in his spirit. He remembers hearing the Torah where the Bible exhorted him, don't sell the inheritance of your fathers. Don't sell your possessions, but trust in the Lord. Pass them generationally to your children and your children's children. And he's also comparing it to the kingdom of unrighteousness that's standing before in front of him. He knows what Ahab has introduced. He knows the illicit sexual behavior that's running rampant in his nation. And the third verse, the words that flow off of Naboth's mouth resound in my spirit today because I'm hoping to raise up a group of men and women uh, that in our hearts cry we echo these faithful words that Naboth told uh, the apostate king that day when Naboth said, God forbid, may the Lord forbid me that I would give you the inheritance of my fathers. Let me give you the 2014 translation. He looked at the king and he said, my vote is not for sale. I'm sorry. You can't have it. You can't have my inheritance. We are a Judeo-Christian nation. We are founded upon biblical principles. Our spiritual forefathers gave us this nation of America to be a light, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the dark and dying world. And no matter the apostate political pressure, you can't have it. It's not for sale. It's not for sale. It's not for sale. Somebody pray with me today. God, let the spirit of Naboth begin to reside in the hearts and the lives of men and women in the church again. May the spirit of Naboth rise up within us and say, God forbid it me that I will give the inheritance of my fathers unto this wicked apostate distorted political and religious movement that is in the earth today. I'm sorry 
Mr. President, I'm sorry, Democratic Party. I'm sorry, apathetical, apostate Christian church. My allegiance, my vote, my faith is not for sale. Just telling you, Daryl joined me on the platform. I'm closing now. So as your pastor, I'm calling for men and women, even in this church, to break political allegiances that have become distorted in our generation. I'm not thrusting you to another religious or, or political entity or another platform. I'm not, but I'm just telling you the one you're standing on is faulty. If you're standing on the one that I've formerly mentioned, the right to marry, the right to marry should be affirmed in the eyes of God, and it belongs only to a man and a woman. It's not for sale. It's not for sale. The life of the unborn is precious in the sight of God, and it should not be for sale. But it's been for sale in our culture. More about this later. It's coming. Allah is not God. Muhammad is not his prophet. The United States of America was founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs. The official adopted motto of the United States of America is, In God we trust, and it should not be for sale. Our forefathers gave us a religious heritage that gained its strength from the scriptures. Go back and read and, and, and follow the history of this nation. You couldn't even serve uh, in, in law without, uh, without being able to uh, have a, a theology, having a theological degree because the laws of the land were so entrenched in theology. It produced the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and a legal system that should promote life and liberty, not perversion and immorality. I believe that it was John Adams that said our, our constitution is for a moral people, a religious people. It will not work any other way. You look at what's going on around you and say, well, why, why isn't it working? Because we're no longer a moral people. We're becoming a moral people. And so therefore, it's not going to work. Any renewed spiritual awakening must happen first to the church. Are y'all hearing me today? It should happen first to the church right here in our hearts. Many have succumbed to the pressure of Ahab. For your allegiance is being purchased by the promise of gifts from the treasury. I'm being honest today. This is my conviction. I pray that a new, a new movement of Christians will arise in America. And you'll be willing to face the political and religious pressure of our day by declaring the fateful words of an ancient biblical figure, I'm sorry, it's not for sale. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed in the presence of God. It's not for sale. It's not for sale. It's not for sale. You know, we're exhorted, church family, to pray for a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. Did you hear that? We're exhorted to pray for a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. A prayer. Pastor Brown, do you not pray for, for our, our president and our leaders? Absolutely, I pray for them. First of all, I pray, God, if their hearts won't change, remove them. I do pray that, just like that. But God, I pray that their hearts can be pliable. God, I pray that their hearts can turn. Nebuchadnezzar turned. He ate grass like an ox for seven years 
And then he said, you know what? God is God. So God can change the hearts of men if they'll turn to him in repentance. I think in the backdrop of the rain that's falling right now, I think it would be wrong for me not to ask you to come forward and let's pray. This week is July 4th. We're going to be celebrating the independence that was granted to us by the blood of men and women during the Revolutionary War and the subsequent wars that have, have maintained that freedom. I think we should pray today. We should pray in this house that God, you turn the hearts. Turn the hearts of our friends, our family, our neighbors to you. Create a boldness in the church. If I'm going to be honest. If our doctrine divides us, then so be it. So be it. If what I'm preaching divides this church, so be it. If I preach it this way and it frustrates you and you have to find another church, then so be it. Because it's not for sale. It's not for sale. The spirit of Naboth rests on me. I don't know what rests on you, but the spirit of Naboth rests on me. Naboth died for his belief. He died. Jezebel, two days later, spilled his blood. But I'll tell you what. <laughs> Harlotry today is associated with Jezebel. But Naboth is a biblical hero that stands out as a man of God that should inspire men and women of all generations. Would y'all take a few minutes and just flood the altars today of old? It's raining outside. You don't want to go to your car right now in the first place. You know, back in days gone by in the church, we'd come and we'd linger on the, around the altar. We'd say, I'm not that worried about getting to be at the, at the restaurant first. This is real deal stuff. My son's in the military right now. He's in, uh, he's in basic training, and we've got uh, veterans among us, and we know we're praying for troops. We're praying for protection, and we're praying God would keep them. We're praying for our country to repent and to humble themselves. We're praying for pastors and leaders to address the issues of their age, of their, uh, of their generation, to be strong and bold and authoritative, to be unafraid and unashamed to preach the gospel of Christ. To do as I shared last week, to reprove and to resist. We reprove the world and we resist evil spirits. We discern the spirits. We know there's a demonic spirit that's involved here, people. This is the spirit of Jezebel. This is the spirit of Ahab. It's moving to pervert the land. The warning to ancient Israel was if the land becomes so perverted, it will vomit you out. It will vomit you out. It's a dangerous thing. My God, church family, can't we wake up? My God, can't we wake up as people? Can't we have convictions that are not for sale? Would y'all pray that with me today and say, God, let the convictions of the church no longer be for sale. I'm tired of this, uh, this, this swap out that people are making for morality. Well, this party promises me this, so I'll give them my vote. Listen, I would rather do without than to bring myself into allegiance with Ahab. That's just how I feel. In the name of Jesus. So I'm praying, God, we rend our hearts. As the pastor of this assembly today, God, I'm judging no man but myself today, Father. Lord, I'm not condemning no man, Father God, but I am in my own way reproving, Father, in the name of Jesus. I know my voice, Father, does not echo all the way to Washington, D.C. I know that my voice doesn't echo all the way to the state house and the capital in Arkansas. And Father God, and oddly enough, my voice is not even echoing all the way to the courthouse here in Cleaver County. But God, my voice is echoing in the ears of this listening audience today, this church. Father, I'm praying for them today. I'm praying they'll be salt and light. I'm praying they'll be strong. 
I'm praying they'll have an anointing like Naboth did. I'm praying that they'll have the spirit of the sons of Issachar. We look back to two weeks ago on Father's Day when the sons of Issachar discerned the times and knew what should be done. God, help us to know what we need to do. Help us to guard our allegiances carefully today, Father, in the name of Jesus. If it means change, we change. God, the spirit of Martin Luther needs to rest upon us who broke free from the Catholic Church, nailing his 95 Thesis to the door at the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Father God, when he condemned the papacy and the, Father God, the, the heretical teachings of the, of, the, of the Roman Church. And we need that boldness to resound in the church of Jesus Christ. Father, let truth echo across the church, God. Let truth echo the truth of the Word of God. Father, your Word tells us of a day when truth would fall in the streets. Men would call evil good and good evil, and we've arrived at that in our culture today. We've arrived at a day when political pressure mounts. The spirit of Jezebel mounts, and the church, like Elijah, is running from it today. But God, may we have our moment in the cave. May we have our moment in the cave. May we have our moment where our head, Father God, gets wrapped in our own mantle, God. And we begin to awaken the anointing that's within us and realize that all that live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. It's not going to be easy, but God, we can be strong and we can be bold. Our voices can sound loud and authoritative, God. And those words can be used of the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of the lost, God. God, in Jesus' name. It's our prayer today, Father. God, I pray for men and women under the sound of my voice. God, I've confessed to people. I've confessed to people. I said, my path doesn't take me in the path very often. And people caught in the vice of this type of immorality. I'm in the sheepfold. I'm in the sheepfold, and I'm not out there like they are. But I just pray that you'll temper them in love, temper them in grace, but put an anointing upon them, an anointing that refuses to yield. Some of them have close family members and even siblings that that spirit has come over. Can we take a moment and pray for those caught in the vice of homosexuality today? You know, if I told you we're going to pray for that person caught in crystal meth, Joe mentioned it earlier. If, we, if I said that, I, you know, you'd say, man, that has affected our culture and affects our people in my family. And we would pray for them today. Well, you know what? People are caught in the vice of homosexuality, and we need to pray for them. It's destructive. If you don't think it's destructive, you're sadly mistaken. It's physically destructive, it's psychologically destructive, and it's spiritually destructive. So we're praying for them today, God, in the name of Jesus. We don't hate them. Father God, we don't hate them in any capacity. We love people, God. Father, some of them are the sons and daughters and the, 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 the extended family members of even those in this church. Holy Spirit, draw them from the far country. Come on, somebody, let's pray that. God, draw them from the far country, God. Bring them by your sovereign grace. Father, bring them by your sovereign grace, God. Father, let them come to themselves. Let them come to themselves, oh God, in Jesus' name. Let them come to themselves and repent before you and turn to you with all their heart, soul, and strength, oh God. Father, we're praying today, God. We're praying. We're praying for the church. God, let the church be strong. Strong, not filled with immorality and iniquity. God, help us to live a life that's pleasing to you. Father, that red word we read in Ephesians last week said, don't let any of this even be named once among you as become its saints. 
Let us live our lives, God, as becometh saints. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that today. That's our prayer. It's sincere. It's humbling. It's humbled before you. Our prayer is today, Father. God, I don't want to be found guilty of becoming proud and arrogant, boastful, Father, but I want to humble myself in your sight. I want to pray today, Father, that you would grant our nation, grant our culture deep-seated repentance and conviction of sin, Father, that turns men and women to you. God, we know that we as the church can't convict anyone, can we, church? We can't. We're not the Holy Spirit, but your Spirit can sweep in. God, if a cloud of darkness can sweep in, so can, Father, a cloud of conviction. God, would you bring that into our land? Would you bring it? Would you bring it? God, we're praying. We're just humbling ourselves in prayer. And God, we do pray this week for our nation. We pray for our elected leaders. It is that our sincere faith, Father, that their hearts would turn to you. God, even Ahab later had a little moment of repentance. Father God, all throughout the lives of the kings, we see men. Manasseh filled the land with innocent blood till the Assyrians put a hook in his nose and drug him to a prison for many years where he repented and he turned to you, God. And then you brought favor upon him and the land. So we do pray, turn the hearts of politicians at every level. Come on, are y'all praying that we at every level? Isn't that our responsibility to pray for a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness from Father God, the, the man that sits on the quorum court across the street from us right now in a small rural community in north central Arkansas all the way to the President of the United States and the Supreme Court and the Congress and the Senate, God. We pray that their hearts will be humbled before yours, turn to you, that they would rend their hearts before you. Father, I'm asking today, if people refuse refuse to respond to conviction if they're going to sit in a if they're going to sit in a seat of authority move them out of that office put a man or put a woman of God of integrity and godly morals and godly values in that office God we pray that in all humility and lastly and I know it sounds like a sermon that's going on and on but on this day this week, we pray for every man and every woman that's a part of the armed forces of the United States of America. God, wherever the fight for freedom is found, Father, from a training camp in Fort Seal, Oklahoma, where my good buddy's at, to a foxhole in Afghanistan. God, wherever these brave men and women are at, we pray, God, that you do a work in their heart and in their life. And even in their adversity, they would find a strength in you, God. And they would turn to you and you would keep them and preserve them, Father, in the name of Jesus. It's our prayer. It's offered in faith and it's offered in simplicity today, God. As the pastor of this wonderful assembly, God, I close this sermon. I close this moment. Thank you for it. God, I just commit it to you and I will leave it there. It's in Jesus' name. May all of God's children say it. Amen. Amen and amen and amen and amen and amen. Thank you so much for your reverence before the Lord. Be in prayer and you can pray as long as you like because it's still raining outside.